0: section 5 of the life of god in the soul of man by henry scougal this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by i shall mention but two other means for begetting that holy and divine temper of spirit which is the subject of the present discourse the first is a deep and serious consideration of the truths of our religion and that as to both the certainty and importance of them The assent which is ordinarily given to divine truths is very faint and languid, very weak and ineffectual, flowing only from a blind inclination to follow that religion which is in fashion, or a lazy indifference and unconcernedness whether things are so or not. Men are unwilling to quarrel with the religion of their country, and, since all their neighbours are Christians, they are content to be so as well. But they are seldom at pains to consider the evidence of those truths, or to ponder the importance and tendency of them. And thence it is that they have so little influence on their affections and practice. Those spiritless and paralytic thoughts are not able to move the will and direct the hand. We must therefore endeavor to work our minds up to a serious belief and full persuasion of divine truths, and to a sense and feeling of spiritual things. Our thoughts must dwell upon them till we are both convinced of them and deeply affected by them. Let us urge our spirits forward, and make them approach the invisible world. Let us fix our minds upon immaterial things, until we clearly perceive that these are not dreams, nay, that all things are dreams and shadows except them. When we look about us, and behold the beauty and magnificence of this goodly frame, the order and harmony of the whole creation, let our thoughts from thence take their flight towards that omnipotent wisdom and goodness which at first produced, and still establishes and upholds, the same when we reflect upon ourselves let us consider that we are not a mere piece of organized matter a curious and well-contrived engine that there is more in us than flesh blood and bones even a divine spark that is capable of knowing loving and enjoying our maker and though that spark is now exceedingly clogged with its dull and lumpy companion yet ere long it shall be delivered and can subsist without the body as well as the body can do without the clothes which we throw off at our pleasure let us often withdraw our thoughts from this earth, the scene of misery, folly and sin, and raise them towards that more vast and glorious world, whose innocent and blessed inhabitants solace themselves eternally in the Divine Presence, and know no other passion but an unmixed joy and an unbounded love. And then let us consider how the blessed Son of God came down to this lower world to live among us and die for us, so that He might bring us to a portion of this same felicity, think how he has overcome the sharpness of death opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers and is now set down at the right hand of the majesty on high yet he is no less mindful of us but receives our prayers and presents them unto his father and is daily visiting his church with the influences of his spirit as the sun reaches us with its beams The serious and frequent consideration of these, and such other divine truths, is the most proper method to beget that lively faith which is the foundation of religion, the spring and root of the divine life. Let me further suggest some particular subjects of meditation for producing the various branches of it. And first, to inflame our souls with the love of God, let us consider the excellency of his nature and his love and kindness towards us. We know little of the divine perfection, and yet that little may suffice to fill our souls with admiration and love, to ravish our affections as well as to raise our wonder. For we are not merely creatures of sense, that we should be incapable of any other affection but that which enters by the eyes. The character of any excellent person whom we have never seen will, many times, engage our hearts and make us hugely concerned in all his interests. And what is it, I pray you, that engages us so much to those with whom we converse? I cannot think that it is merely the color of their face, or their comely proportions, for then we would fall in love with statues, pictures, and flowers. These outward accomplishments may delight the eye a little, but would never be able to prevail so much on the heart if they did not represent some vital perfection. We either see or apprehend some greatness of mind, vigor, of spirit, or sweetness of disposition, some sprightliness, wisdom, or goodness which charmed our spirit and commanded our love. Now these perfections are not obvious to the sight the eyes can only discern the signs and effects of them and if it is the understanding that directs the affection and vital perfections prevail with it certainly the excellencies of the divine nature the traces whereof we cannot but discover in everything we behold would not fail to engage our hearts if we seriously viewed and regarded them shall we not be infinitely more transported with that almighty wisdom and goodness which fills the universe and displays itself in all parts of creation which establishes the frame of nature and turns the mighty wheels of providence which keeps the world from disorder and ruin than with faint rays of the same perfections which we meet within our fellow-creatures shall we dote on the scattered pieces of a rude and imperfect picture and never be affected with the original beauty This would be an unaccountable stupidity and blindness. Whatever we find lovely in a friend or a saint ought not to engross, but to elevate our affection. We should conclude with ourselves that if there is so much sweetness in a drop, there must be infinitely more in the fountain. If there is so much splendour in a ray, what must the sun be in its glory? Nor can we pretend the remoteness of the object, as if God were at too great a distance for our converse or our love. As the scripture says, he is not far from every one of us for in him we live and move and have our being acts chapter seventeen verses twenty seven to twenty eight we cannot open our eyes without beholding some footsteps of his glory and we cannot turn them towards him but we shall be sure to find his intent upon us waiting as it were to catch a look ready to entertain the most intimate fellowship and communion with us let us therefore endeavor to raise our minds to the clearest conceptions of the divine nature Let us consider all that his works declare, or all that his word reveals to us of him, and let us especially contemplate that visible representation of him which was made in our own nature by his Son, who was the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, and who appeared in the world to reveal at the same time what God is and what we ought to be. Let us represent him unto our minds as we find him described in the gospel, and there we shall behold the perfections of the divine nature, though covered with the veil of human infirmities. And when we have framed unto ourselves the clearest notion that we can of such a being, infinite in power, in wisdom and goodness, the author and fountain of all perfections, let us fix the eyes of our soul upon it, so that our eyes may affect our heart, and while we are thus musing, the fire will burn." We must do this especially if hereunto we add the consideration of God's favour and good-will towards us. Nothing is more powerful to engage our affection than to find that we are beloved. Expressions of kindness are always pleasing and acceptable unto us, though the person might be otherwise mean and contemptible. But to have the love of one who is altogether lovely, to know that the glorious majesty of heaven has any regard for us, how must that astonish and delight us! how it must overcome our spirits melt our hearts and put our whole soul into a flame as the word of god is full of the expressions of his love towards man so all his works loudly proclaim it he gave us our being and by preserving us in it he renews the donation every moment He has placed us in a rich and well-furnished world, and liberally provides for all our necessities. He rains down blessings from heaven upon us, and causes the earth to bring forth our provision. He gives us our food and raiment, and while we are spending the productions of one year, he is preparing for us against another. He sweetens our lives with innumerable comforts, and gratifies every faculty with suitable objects. The eye of his providence is always upon us, and he watches for our safety when we are fast asleep. But lest we should think these testimonies of his kindness less considerable, because they are the easy issues of his omnipotent power, and do not put him to any trouble or pain, he has taken a more wonderful method to endear himself to us. He has testified his affection to us by suffering as well as doing, and because he could not suffer in his own nature, he assumed ours. The eternal Son of God clothed himself with the infirmities of our flesh, and left the company of those innocent and blessed spirits, who well knew how to love and adore him, so that he might dwell among men, and wrestle with the obstinacy of that rebellious race, to reduce them to their allegiance and fidelity, and then to offer himself up as a sacrifice and propitiation for them. I remember that one of the poets used ingenious fancy to express the passion with which he found himself overcome after resisting God for a long time. The God of love shot all his golden arrows at me, but could never pierce my heart until, at length, he put himself into the bow and darted himself straight into my breast. I think this in some way outlines God's method of dealing with men. He had long contended with a stubborn world, and had thrown down many a blessing upon them, and when all his other gifts could not prevail, he at last made a gift of himself to testify his affection and to engage theirs the account which we have of our saviour's life in the gospel all along presents us with the story of his love all the pains that he took and the troubles that he endured were the wonderful effects and uncontrollable evidences of it but oh that last that dismal scene is it possible to remember it and question his kindness or deny him ours Here, here it is, my dear friend, that we should fix our most serious and solemn thoughts, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by love, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, length, depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God we ought also frequently to reflect on those particular tokens of favor and love which god has bestowed on us how long he has borne with our follies and sins and waited to be gracious unto us wrestling as it were with the stubbornness of our hearts and using every method to reclaim us We should keep a register in our minds of all the eminent blessings and deliverances we have met with, some whereof have been so conveyed that we might clearly perceive that they were not the issues of chance, but the gracious effects of the divine favour and the signal returns of our prayers. Nor ought we to embitter the thoughts of these things with any harsh or unworthy suspicion, as if they were designed on purpose to enhance our guilt and heighten our eternal damnation. No, no, my friend, God is love, and he has no pleasure in the ruin of his creatures. If they abuse his goodness, and turn his grace into wantonness, thereby plunging themselves into greater depths of guilt and misery, this is the effect of their obstinate wickedness, and not the design of those benefits which he bestows. If these considerations had once begotten in our hearts a real love and affection towards Almighty God, then that would easily lead us into the other branches of religion, and therefore I need say the less of them we shall find our hearts enlarged in charity towards men by considering the relation wherein they stand unto god and the impresses of his image which are stamped upon them they are not only his creatures the workmanship of his hands but such of whom he takes special care and for whom he has a very dear and tender regard he laid the design of their happiness before the foundations of the world and is willing to live and converse with them to all eternity the meanest and most contemptible person we may behold is the offspring of heaven, one of the children of the Most High, and however unworthy he might behave himself with regard to that relationship, as long as God has not abdicated and disowned him by a final sentence, he will have us acknowledged him as one of his, and as such to embrace him with the sincere and cordial affection. You know what a great concern we are wont to have for those who in any way belong to the person whom we love how gladly we lay hold on every opportunity to gratify the child or servant of a friend, and surely our love towards God would as naturally spring forth in charity towards men, if we minded the interests that he is pleased to take in them, and consider that every soul is dearer unto him than all the material world, and that he did not account the blood of his son too great a price to pay for their redemption. Again, as all men stand in a near relation to God, so they have still so much of His image stamped upon them, as may oblige and excite us to love them. In some this image is more eminent and conspicuous, and we can discern the lovely traces of wisdom and goodness. And though in others it is miserably sullied and defaced, yet it is not altogether erased, some lineaments at least still remain. All men are endued with rational and immortal souls, with understandings and wills capable of the highest and most excellent things and if they are at present disordered and put out of tune by wickedness and folly, this may indeed move our compassion, but ought not to be a reason to extinguish our love. When we see a person in a rugged humour and perverse disposition, full of malice and dissimulation, very foolish and very proud, it is hard to fall in love with an object that presents itself unto us under an idea so ungrateful and unlovely but when we consider these evil qualities as the diseases and distempers of a soul which in itself is capable of all that wisdom and goodness wherewith the best of saints have ever been adorned and which may one day come to be raised unto such heights of perfection as shall render it a fit companion for the holy angels this will turn our aversion into pity and make us behold him with such resentments as we should have when we look upon a beautiful body that has been mangled with wounds or disfigured by some loathsome disease and however we hate the vices, we shall not cease to love the man. In the next place, to purify our souls and disentangle our affections from the pleasures and enjoyments of this lower life let us frequently ponder the excellency and dignity of our nature and what a shameful and unworthy thing it is for so noble and divine a creature as the soul of man to sink and be immersed in brutish and sensual lust or mused with airy and fantastic delights and so to lose the relish of solid and spiritual pleasures so that the beast should be fed and pampered and the man and the christian in us be starved if we minded who we are, and for what we were made, this would teach us in a right sense to reverence and stand in awe of ourselves. It would beget a modesty and shamefacedness, and make us very shy and reserved in the use of the most innocent and allowable pleasures. It will be very effective, for the same purpose, that we frequently raise our minds towards heaven, and represent to our thoughts the joys that are at God's right hand, those pleasures that endure for ever. For every man who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. First John chapter 3, verse 3 If our heavenly country is much in our thoughts, it will make us, as strangers and pilgrims, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul, and keep ourselves unspotted from this world, so that we may be fit for the enjoyments and felicities of the other. But our notions of heaven must not be gross and carnal. We are not to dream of some Mohammedan paradise, nor rest on those metaphors and similitudes by which these joys are sometimes represented for this might perhaps have quite a contrary effect it might entangle us further in carnal affections and we should be ready to indulge ourselves in a very liberal foretaste of those pleasures wherein we had placed our everlasting felicity but once we come to conceive a right of those pure and spiritual pleasures when the happiness we propose to ourselves is from the sight love and enjoyment of god and our minds are filled with the hopes and forethoughts of that blessed estate oh how lowly and contemptible will all things here below appear in our eyes with what disdain shall we reject the gross and muddy pleasures that would deprive us of those celestial enjoyments or in any way unfit and indispose us for them the last branch of religion is humility and surely we can never lack matter of consideration for begetting it all our wickednesses and imperfections all our follies and our sins may help to pull down that fond conceit which we are apt to entertain of ourselves that which makes anybody esteem us is their knowledge or apprehension of some little good and their ignorance of a great deal of evil that may be in us were they thoroughly acquainted with us they would quickly change their opinions the thoughts that pass in our heart in the best and most serious day of our life being exposed to public view would render us either hateful or ridiculous and now however we conceal our failings from one another yet we are surely conscious of them ourselves and some serious reflection on them would much qualify and allay the vanity of our spirits us, holy men have come really to think worse of themselves than of any other person in the world. Not that they knew that gross and scandalous vices are in their nature more heinous than the surprises of temptations and infirmity, but because they were much more focused on their own miscarriages than on those of their neighbours, and considered all the aggravations of the one, and everything that might be supposed to diminish and alleviate the other. But it is well observed by a pious writer that the deepest and most pure humility, does not so much arise from the consideration of our own faults and defects, as from a calm and quiet contemplation of the divine purity and goodness. Our spots never appear so clearly as when we place them before this infinite light, and we never seem less in our own eyes than when we look down upon ourselves from on high. Oh, how little, how nothing, do all those shadows of perfection then appear, for which we are wont to value ourselves! That humility which comes from a view of our own sinfulness and misery is more turbulent and boisterous, but the other lays us full as low, and lacks nothing of that anguish and vexation wherewith our souls are apt to boil when they are the nearest objects of our thoughts. There remains yet another means for begetting a holy and religious disposition in the soul, and that is fervent and hearty prayer. Holiness is the gift of God, indeed the greatest gift He bestows, or that we are capable of receiving and he has promised his Holy Spirit to those who ask it of him. In prayer we make the nearest approaches to God, and lie open to the influences of heaven. Then it is that the Son of Righteousness visits us with his most direct rays, dissipates our darkness, and imprints his image upon our souls. I cannot now insist on the advantages of this exercise, or the dispositions wherewith it ought to be performed, and there is no need that I should, since there are so many books that treat this subject i shall only tell you that as there is one sort of prayer wherein we make use of the voice which is necessary in public and may sometimes have its own advantages in private and another wherein though we utter no sound we conceive the expressions and form the words as it were in our minds so there is a third and more sublime kind of prayer wherein the soul takes a higher flight and having collected all its forces by long and serious meditation it darts itself towards god in sighs groans and thoughts too big for expression An example of this would be when a person, after a deep contemplation of the divine perfections, appearing in all his works of wonder, addresses himself unto God in the most profound adoration of his majesty and glory, or when, after sad reflections on its vileness and miscarriages, a man prostrates himself before God with the greatest confusion and sorrow, not daring to lift up his eyes or utter one word in his presence or when having well considered the beauty of holiness and the unspeakable felicity of those who are truly good he pants after god and sends up such vigorous and ardent desires as no words can sufficiently express continuing and repeating each of these acts as long as he finds himself upheld by the force and impulse of the previous meditation this mental prayer is of all others the most effectual to purify the soul and dispose it unto a holy and religious temper it may be called the great secret of devotion, and one of the most powerful instruments of the divine life. It may be that the Apostle had a peculiar respect for it when he said that the Spirit helps our infirmities, making intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, Romans chapter eight, verse twenty six, or, as the original has it, that cannot be worded. Yet I do not so recommend this sort of prayer as to supersede the use of the other for we have so many things to pray for and every petition of this nature requires so much time and such great intention of spirit that it would not be easy therein to overtake them all to say nothing of the deep sighs and heavings of the heart which are wont to accompany it are something oppressive to nature and make it hard to continue long in them but certainly a few of these inward aspirations will do more than a great many fluent and melting expressions Thus, my dear friend, I have briefly disposed the method which I judge proper for moulding the soul into a holy frame, and the same means which serve to beget this divine temper must still be practised for strengthening and advancing it. Therefore I shall recommend but one more means for that purpose, and that is the frequent and conscientious use of that holy sacrament, which is peculiarly appointed to nourish and increase the spiritual life once it is begotten in the soul all the instruments of religion meet together in this ordinance and while we address ourselves unto it we put to practise all the rules which were mentioned before then it is that we make the most severe survey of our actions and lay the strictest obligations on ourselves then are our minds raised to the highest contempt of the world and every grace exercises itself with the greatest activity and vigor all the subjects of contemplation there present themselves unto us with the greatest advantage and then if ever does the soul make its most powerful rushes towards heaven and assaults it with a holy and acceptable force and certainly the neglect or careless performance of this duty is one of the chief causes that dwarfs our religion and makes us continue of so low a size but it is time that i put a close to this letter which has grown to a far greater bulk than i at first intended if these poor papers can do you the smallest service i shall think myself very happy in this undertaking at least i am hopeful that you will kindly accept the sincere endeavours of a person who would fain acquit himself of some part of that which he owes you and now, O most gracious God, Father and Fountain of Mercy and Goodness, who hast blessed us with the knowledge of our happiness and the way that leads unto it, excites in our souls such ardent desires after the one as may put us forth to the diligent prosecution of the other. Let us neither presume on our own strength nor distrust Thy divine assistance. But while we are doing our utmost endeavours, teach us still to depend on Thee for success. Open our eyes, O God, and teach us out of Thy law. Bless us with an exact and tender sense of our duty, and a knowledge to discern perverse things. Oh, that our ways were directed to keep thy statutes, then shall we not be ashamed when we have respect unto all thy commandments. Possess our hearts with a generous and holy disdain of all those poor enjoyments which this world holds out to allure us, so that we may never be able to inveigle our affections, or betray us to any sin. Turn away our eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken us in thy law fill our souls with such a deep sense and full persuasion of those great truths which thou hast revealed in the gospel as may influence and regulate our whole conversation and so that the life which we henceforth live in the flesh we may live through faith in the son of god oh that the infinite perfections of thy blessed nature and the astonishing expressions of thy goodness and love may conquer and overpower our hearts that they may be constantly rising toward thee in flames of the most devout affection, and enlarging themselves in sincere and cordial love towards all the world for thy sake, and that we may cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in thy fear, without which we can never hope to behold and enjoy thee. Finally, O God, grant that the considerations of what thou art, and what we ourselves are, May both humble and lay us low before Thee, and also stir up in us the strongest and most ardent aspirations towards Thee. We desire to resign and give up ourselves to the conduct of Thy Holy Spirit. Lead us in Thy truth, and teach us, for Thou art the God of our salvation. Guide us with Thy counsel, and afterwards receive us unto glory, for the merits and intercession of Thy blessed Son, our Saviour. Amen. End of section 5. Recording by Genra Mundo. End of the Life of God in the Soul of Man by Henry Schugel